Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. May 18, 2016, I'm Rich Schmidt here with Paul Hart, uh, and we're here at the Nicholson Library in Linfield College. And Paul, we'd like to start you off with a nice, easy question, which okay. is why wine? Why wine? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that we're here in a Baptist institution because my uh, family were Southern Baptists, and I had a great-grandmother who was the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union in Idaho. <laughs> and uh, our family just were not wine drinkers, not, not, not at drinkers. All. Not at all. At all. Um, and my dad began to change that, but not really wine. And uh, it wasn't until I was in my 30s and moved to a consulting business where I was entertaining clients that I started eating out in nice restaurants, drinking good wines, and had two clients who had been in the service in Europe and stayed after the Second World War for mm -hmm. several years and both lived in Burgundy. <laughs> both of them knew more about the vineyards and the wineries and the winemakers of Burgundy than anybody I've met. Wow. In my life. Sure. Just wonderful introduction. And it was interesting because neither of their bosses wanted to see expensive wines and expensive food on the expense account. So we had a deal where whenever we were together in the same place, we would go out to the best restaurant with the best wine list. I would pick up the tab. <laughs> <laughs> so you could have the good stuff. We'd have the good stuff. And you know, this is back in the 70s. We had these unbelievable vintages from late 50s, early 60s, mid 60s. And I didn't realize at that time that I was basically starting at the top <laughs> of the wine. We were drinking just great burgundies mm -hmm. mostly. Mostly reds, but uh, some whites. And I just fell in love with the stuff. And I really did not like the few California wines that I tasted. They just, they weren't very subtle, they weren't very interesting, and um, I just became a total Francophile. And that was, happened to be occurring in the early 70s. And in about, probably about 1974, I was having dinner in a restaurant in Boise, a chef who had been in Portland for a while, he knew that I was interested in, in burgundies. He brought this bottle out in a paper bag, poured me a glass of white wine, and he said, what do you think of this? I tasted it, and tasted it, and tasted it, and it was a very confusing wine, wonderful wine, mm -hmm. but very confusing because I said, this tastes like you poured some, some Chablis, maybe some, um, Pellini Monarchet, um, white wines from several different parts of Burgundy. Interesting. Like poured them all together. <laughs> it had the characteristics of all of them. And it was wonderful. And he 
pulled it out of the bag, and it was uh, David Lett's first Chardonnay, first release. And I, I can't remember whether it was 72 or 73, but it was a very early release for him. And literally, that bottle of wine changed my life. Um, because I found out it was from Oregon. And he had poured it for me because he knew I was from Portland. And I, I went home and uh, called David and said, <laughs> I want to come out and talk to you. <laughs> and I said, if you can make a white wine like that, you can make a red wine that's as good as anything in Burgundy. And he said, I know, <laughs> but not very many people leave, believe me. Right, right. And, and we've not done it yet. But you know the potential was there, so it, you know at that point, I started spending time with uh, Erath and Ponzi and David and David Lett, Dave Adelsheim, and ultimately with Sokol Blossers and um, with um, Pat and Joe Campbell at Elk Cove mm -hmm. through the '70s, and mm -hmm. I, I became a, a good customer, for <laughs> all of them, and, and Myron. Mm -hmm. um, I became a good customer and, and just a, a sponge trying to absorb as much information as I could and you know, realized quickly that what uh, David Lett felt about the location and the potential was absolutely right on, that this was one of the great places in the world for Pinot Noir especially. And at, you know, at that time, I had a family. I had um, a consulting business um, and a lot of commitments. <laughs> By the end of later in the 70s, the kids were starting to go off to college. And I just kept hanging on around the industry. Mm -hmm. And finally, in, in 1978, I remember being out at Elk Cove, barrel tasting from it was probably was either late 78 or early 79, tasting from the 78 vintage out of barrel. And I said, you finally got it. <laughs> that was, to me, that was the first time that the potential really showed in the wines itself. And to me, that vintage just um, proved it. And so then I had a, a that's a long answer to a question. I'd be glad to. <laughs> Great answer. Uh, but but that's why. And uh, it just literally grabbed hold of me, and uh, I was in the right place. So how do you get from there to the next step? Well, um, I had a client who was uh, a CFO of a major company who was also fascinated with the wines and he and his wife, my wife and I would go out and visit people together. And we actually spent a lot of time with Pat and Joe at Elk Cove because they were just wonderful people. They, and are. they were doing some great things and we were really excited about what they were doing. And we decided then, probably after we tasted the 78, we said, well, let's see if we can figure out a way to get into this business. So we were going to form a partnership and we found a young man who had started working with Charles Curry at, at Curry's operation when he was in high school. And his dad had a vineyard and 
his, na his name was Dave, was Dave Wirtz. And um, Dave was running the vineyard, but really wanted to be a winemaker. So we started spending time with David and um, had him start looking for property for us. Mm -hmm. And you know, looked at a lot of dirt. <laughs> and we're really progressing fairly slowly until uh, 1981, my partners in my actuarial firm came to me and said, Paul, um, you can't do that. Uh, we don't want you to have a venture like that outside of the work you're doing in the firm mm. because we think it would con conflict with your professional responsibilities. Interesting, interesting. So I said, you know, I've, I've got a choice to make because um, I either stay where I am and don't do something in the wine business or I make a change in uh, the wine. So in 1981, I, I uh, left my practice and joined clients in the insurance business who had I'd been doing quite a bit of work for. And they were perfectly happy to have me join them and do the winery as well. So that was 1981. 82, by 82, we had kind of narrowed down what we were looking for. I wanted a piece of property on a major highway. Mm -hmm. And ideally, I wanted it to be at the entrance to wine country when you came out from Portland. Sure. That makes was sense. That kind makes of my sense. primary criteria. Most of the land I looked at was out more in this area, in the Minville area, from here on down toward Amity. And, and uh, it didn't meet all of my criteria, but one day I was coming out to look at a piece on Walnut Hill. And when I drove back to Portland, there was a for sale sign on the property where Rex Hill now is. It wasn't there in the morning, but it was put up <laughs> during the day. I got to the top of the hill, whipped around, went down, got the information, called the realtor, and um, signed an earthsmanly agreement the next morning at wow. nine o'clock. I didn't amazing. want that to get away because no. it was exactly what I wanted. Exactly what you wanted. The location that I wanted. And it wasn't the best soil. It was a southwest to westerly exposure where I wanted a little more south. But it was still, it was, it was good. Right. I knew it would be decent grape land and it was a perfect winery location. And then I went home and, and uh, told my wife, who wasn't terribly thrilled at that point. <laughs> she said, you're, you're and, and then, then I called my partner and said, well, I found the property. Uh, I've got, you know, started, I got an earnest money agreement signed. And he said, well, I was just gonna call you because uh, I've been offered a job with an investment firm and they want me to make an investment in the firm and I'm not going to have the money Ugh. to put into the winery. So now, um, you know, what I thought that I was buying half of, uh, I was buying 100% of. <laughs> and I had, uh, I had four kids in college oh. and uh, a lot of other commitments. And 
when I told Jan that my partner had backed out, she was uh, very concerned. Anyway, I said, all right, I'll go ahead. I, th I think I can go ahead and get the property. We can start working on the building and maybe two or three years have it ready. And we can do that with cash flow as we go along and, and uh, that'll be okay. Which worked fine until May of 83. We worked on it over the winter and I was in the office during the day and I was out at the winery in the mm -hmm. weekends and evenings and any time I could. And, um, things were progressing and uh, in May of 83, I was out visiting um, several wineries, tasting some of the previous vintage. And one of the, the uh, winery owners said, I just made some really difficult phone calls to a couple of my growers because I've got a warehouse full of wine mm. from the last couple of vintages and Oregon wines are just not selling. And he said, I don't really know how this is gonna work out, but we feel like we have to cut back our production this year. So we've uh, told a couple of the growers that mm. we can't take their grapes. And at that time, there were no written contracts. It was all verbal and sure. it was just sort of a gentleman's agreement. And the vineyards were relatively young. And I said, well, who are they? And he gave me the names of the vineyards. And I had made a list of what I considered to be the top 10 vineyards in the Limit Valley at that time. They were all on my list. <laughs> so I went home, got on the phone, called them all, and I said, I'd like to meet with you. And did as quickly as I could. I said, I'll give you a five-year contract or a three-year contract, whatever, whatever you want. And they said, well, nobody's ever given us even given us a written contract for the year's grapes. Nobody had ever even considered a multi-year contract. And one of them said, well, I, I think I just might rip the grapes out and put prunes or something in because <laughs> obviously the industry's not going anywhere. And although the potential's there, uh, it's not worth the risk for my family. So they said, but, but based on you know, your commitment, we'll believe you and we'll keep the grapes in. So then I went home and, and uh, explained to Jan that uh, not only do we have a building under construction, but uh, I have just committed to buy probably 60 or 70 tons of fruit <laughs> in September. We have no equipment. Um, we, have, we don't have the financing in place to do that, but I've I've committed to buy the grapes. And at that point, she said, I can't even talk about this. <laughs> she said, we've, we've got to make a deal. She said, you can, you can do whatever you want as long as you can promise me that you'll be able to take care of the family and that kids can stay in school and you know, we'll be all right, right long term. And I said, well, I, I think I can do that because my business was doing reasonably well. But she said, I don't want to talk about it. So, I mean, we'd sit at dinner and I would have been out there all day working on something and we didn't talk about it. We had a very nice, wonderful relationship, relatively newlyweds, and that was the way we could uh, That's amazing. deal with it. She did agree to go to France with me for a week 
in early June because there was a big trade show in uh, Stuttgart and I wanted to buy a, a big German press and I couldn't get one here and I knew exactly what I wanted. My David had had some experience with that and he gave me the, the specs for it. And then I wanted to talk to um, some of the French about barrels. So we uh, we took a week, kind of a sabbatical, where we could talk about it, and we could go to Europe. We could we could go to Stuttgart and uh, get equipment, and uh, we had a we had a wonderful time actually, and uh, it worked out great because the company that I wanted to get the uh, press from was located in Stuttgart, and they had a, a big booth at this trade show. So I, I went to visit them and first thing when we went in the, the show and uh, said, you know, I'd like to uh, talk with you about buying, a, I think it was a, like a 1500 liter press that I wanted. And I said, I want this particular model, which is a very old bladder press. It's very simple equipment. And they said, well, um, you know, we're, um, we're Germans. We don't speak a lot of English. Uh, my German wasn't good enough to really negotiate a, a, a trade deal. And they said, do you speak any other languages? And I said, well, I've, I've had a couple of years of French. I, I'm more fluent in French than I am in German. And they said, we have a, an Italian distributor <laughs> here who speaks fluent French. Maybe the two of you could so they brought the Italian distributor over, and he and I sat there and in halting French and a little English, started negotiating on this press. Well, the result of the conversation was they didn't have a 1500 liter press available, but they had just taken in a 2000 liter press that was probably 50 years old at that time in trade on a newer model or a bigger model and they had gone in and they had refurbished the whole thing. So it was, it was basically a, a new piece of equipment even though it was 50 years old. And they said, we'll give you that um, rebuilt 2000 liter for the price of the new 1500 liter. All this was going on in French. And I said, Sultan, got a deal. We had a handshake and uh, the next week they crated the thing up and shipped it to America. It arrived uh, a couple of weeks before harvest. It was just uh, amazing. And that was, that was basically our start equipment. So then I still had the summer to figure out how I was going to pay for all of this. Our, our business, uh, our new insurance business, mm -hmm. was going fairly well, but we had not really had a great year yet. So I went to a bunch of my partners and, and friends, mostly in the insurance business, and I said, I'm putting this together. I'll, I'll be willing to put together a little partnership and let you guys all come in and be part of my winery ventures. So, you know, in increments of five, 10, I think a couple of guys put in $25,000, which is a fair amount of money. I raised a chunk of money from my friends and uh, went down to the bank and borrowed the rest of it. And, uh, by harvest, we had, we had a press. We had um, 
some French barrels. We had a couple of pieces of stainless uh, stainless tanks. Um, we had a a crusher, um, and we had a whole bunch of old stainless Coca-Cola containers <laughs> that they shipped the syrup in, which are they didn't use those anymore, and I, I don't even know where we found them, but we figured, you know, these will work as nice stainless vessels. They're about the size of an oak, regular oak barrique. We had them there, and Jan was still not talking to me about the <laughs> winery <laughs> until um, harvest started in probably very late September and the first grapes started to come in and I tasted the first grape and I said this is it and to this day those those are the finest grapes <laughs> I've ever seen it was the first truly great Oregon vintage and we were there and so that uh, that first couple of weeks of harvest was a pretty wonderful time because it kind of validated everything that we'd been working on for 10 plus years. That's amazing. This, your origin story has a lot of kind of lucky elements in it, but you, but you also must have felt like you were pretty prepared for it. I was. I, I was an actuary um, in my professional career, and actuaries are essentially trained to be a little like computers to accumulate a lot of information, analyze it, and then make decisions based on that. And I was good at that. And you know, over the ten years from that first experience with David's wine to '83, uh, actually nine years, I was analyzing a lot of information. I was just absorbing everything I couldn't and I thought I was pretty well prepared by 83 there still wasn't much of a market for Oregon wine and it was still a struggle for the guys from that first uh, decade or so to uh, from the 70s you know, to try to convince people to even try it mm -hmm. and uh, the the one thing that I figured that I could perhaps bring to the industry was that I had a fair amount of marketing experience, and I had a pretty good sense as a wine consumer what I thought it would take to convince the consumers to try Oregon wine. I knew if they tried it and, and it was good that they would love it. Sure. Uh, but up to that point, there hadn't been much of it that was really world class, and boy, it was, it was a struggle um, to get people to really get enthusiastic about it. There were very few, a few restaurateurs, a few sommeliers, um, a few journalists who had kind of gotten the word by the late 70s, early 80s, and were interested and in, you know, promoting it a little bit. But I would say the general wine consumer didn't know very much about certainly didn't have an image of Oregon as a great wine place. See, so, so you think it was more ignorance than 
it was it was two things. It was the potential was there, but very few of the certainly of the Pinots in that first decade or so were the quality that um, we knew we could make. Mm -hmm. And they weren't very consistent. So even though you know somebody might have a great 78, um, 79 came along and you know it was okay. Sure. Um, and there wasn't any momentum. It just really hard to build momentum. And then the vintages of uh, 80, 81, 82 were you know okay, but um, not not great. Well, what I figured was we had the we now had the, the raw material, the 83s. Mm -hmm. We had the opportunity to really get people excited. So one of the first things that, that I did, um, and I can't remember exactly when it was, it must have been early 84, I got a hold of all of the other winemakers in the North Willamette Valley, and you know, I was the new guy, and I knew most of them pretty well. As um, as a customer, mm -hmm. but they certainly weren't looking at me as a peer at that point. And I said, "You know, we've got these great eighty threes. I would like to get all of us together with barrel samples of those eighty threes, and let's taste them. And I'd like to at least confirm that." As, as an industry in the North Willamette Valley, and there, you know, there weren't that many of us, but as an industry, that we're almost all going to have something exceptional. Mm -hmm. And if we do, then we need to start getting the press enthused about it. Because the wines aren't gonna be out there for a while, but let's start building some enthusiasm. Sure. So we did a tasting, and I can't remember if we invited some of the local press to come to that first tasting or not. Uh, at, at any rate, shortly after that, um, we did get some of the press to taste. And there weren't very many you know, wine press guys at that <laughs> point anyway. And uh, they did taste them, got excited. The word kind of got out. Uh, we started talking with <coughs> some of the sommeliers that we knew, some of the retailers that we knew, and other places around the country, just kind of getting them interested and enthused about it. And by the time the wines were released, there was a pretty good buzz out there that you know, Oregon may have finally hmm. got it. And of course, the wines just did exceptionally well. Every place they were shown and uh, every competition they were entered in and it was clearly just kind of a big wave mm -hmm. and we thought man you know we've got it <laughs> it's all easy from it's, here it's on all out. easy it's going to be easy from <laughs> here on out yeah. um, but you know we, we did some interesting things with ours um, because I felt that the wine certainly needed to age for a while first we had 100% new oak barrels, and an Oregon Pinot in 100% new oak is um, 
going to age for a while, but it's not necessarily the prettiest wine when it first mm -hmm. comes out of the mm -hmm. bottle. Um, so we decided that we would release our wines over a three-year period instead of releasing them all at one time. And we would raise the prices sure. of each release. And we'd tell everybody in advance, we'll, we'll release your know, third this year. Uh, actually, it was more like 30% this year, 30% next year, 30% next year. And then the, the other 10% goes into the library hmm. for the future. Sure. And the, uh, you know, the retailer said, well, not only do we have a hard time selling Oregon wine, but um, we don't know that we can sell it like that if there's only a little bit of it comes out and the price goes up and it's going to be pretty complicated. And then we also, um, on top of that, decided to do several single vineyards. And up to that point, there had been a little bit of single vineyard Oregon Pinot, but not very much. Mm -hmm. Mostly it was, it was a blended estate or, you know, a winery would blend whatever they had. So we had these individual vineyards. We had, I think we had five 83 Pinots from a brand new winery at a fairly high price. And we had built up this buzz before. So there was some interest and then people started tasting them and man, <laughs> we thought this, this is just a home run. <laughs> and, uh, that, that was fun. Um, we had several friends who were starting wineries and we had planned to start production in either 84 or 85 and kind of pushed it to 83 because of the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Some of the other guys who waited until 84 to start were really disappointed sure. when we got to 84 because it was not a great vintage. Sure. And, um, we made our 84s, but they weren't the same class of wines. So we blended those into um, a basic Rex Hill Pinot and didn't do, I think we might have done a, one or two single vineyards, but they were very, very small production. And when we um, were ready to release the 84s, we had 83s still coming out at a higher price. We brought the 84s out at about half the price of the 83s that we were selling at that time. It just shocked everybody because many of the Oregon wineries had had such success with their 83s mm -hmm. and had brought them out at more like historical prices and they just sold out immediately. Sure. So then they were sitting there, um, the 83s sold the 82s, 81s, 80s, they had in the warehouse all sold based on the 83s and they didn't have a whole lot of wine. So the 84 vintage came along, they made the 84s, they brought them out and they raised their prices above where they had sold their 83s. And I dropped mine <laughs> and they looked at me like, what in the world is going on? I didn't have any trouble selling my 84s because they were okay for the price. Mm -hmm. And I still had the rest of the 83s that I was selling. And, you know, some of them were just shaking their heads at me like, what in the world is, is this guy doing? And um, 
then 85 came along, and 85 was a, um, it was a year where the grapes got very ripe. They were fairly big and uh, not, not a quintessential Oregon Pinot vintage, but a vintage that produced more California-like wines. Mm -hmm. And there was a you know a fair amount of enthusiasm still out there in the marketplace for Oregon based on the 83s. It hadn't been completely dampened mm -hmm. by the 84s. So people jumped on the 85s and they were really going. And we, we did a couple more single vineyards in 85. And, um, you know, and all they, although they weren't the style that I wanted to build my reputation on, they sold well and people were interested in them. So. Anyway, that's the early years. Uh, so it strikes me that you were among the first to, to kind of bring a businessman's uh, uh, attitude into the, into the game. And you also invested at a time when it didn't really make a lot of sense because the industry was struggling. So I, I guess I'm curious, um, did you feel like you were kind of a businessman among wine enthusiasts? And, and, and what gave you the confidence to do that? What gave me the confidence was that by that time, I was completely sold on um, what brought David Lett here in the first place, what got Dick Ureth going. Um, they understood the sense of place and the Pinot was an interesting grape because you can grow Pinot in a whole lot of places. You can ripen it easily in a lot of places. You can't make great Pinot Noir wine in very many places in the world. Um, I think I understood that at that point. And I, you know, I got the message and I was trying to get the message out to other people that there is something really special here. And um, We've got a lot to learn, but the potential is just enormous. And at that point, you know, the the Burgundies, not even the top Burgundies, but the Burgundies that most people would consider to be peers with Oregon mm -hmm. at that stage, and not very many people would consider them to be peers, <laughs> but the few people who did, sure. uh, were selling for two or three times as much as our wines. So I figured, you know, from a business perspective, the potential is, is there. And we've got a lot of things going for us. We've got a, a lot of things against us, one of which was the weather that we couldn't control. And we were going to have a, a much bigger variation of quality from vintage to vintage than most of the Californians do. Sure. And, and certainly the Burgundians deal with that all the time. Uh, and because of that potential inconsistency or, or differential in the quality of the fruit, um, it was going to be challenging to get the message out to the consumer. But when they did get a chance to enjoy one of those Oregon Pinots from one of the mm -hmm. great vintages, uh, there was going to be nothing like it. 
and to, to me, to be part of something like that, which is, which allows you to produce something that's as good as it can be done mm -hmm. in the world, is just a tremendous opportunity. And, and I felt like it was an opportunity that had been given to me. Um, I understood it. Um, I wanted to be part of it. Um, so what that sort of sounds like the basis of your, your kind of business slash wine philosophy. Did you mm -hmm. have more? You said you wanted to establish a reputation. There were certain types of wines you wanted to establish your reputation on. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, Pinot Noir, clearly. Um, to me, it's, it's the greatest grape in the world. Uh, a a top-notch Pinot Red Burgundy is about as good as it gets, except for an occasional bottle of Monarchet or something like that <laughs> that's just uh, unbelievably special. Uh, at least that was the way I felt at that time. I, my wine knowledge has expanded enormously since then, and sure. I've had some really great wines from many places around the world, but the great Pinots I've tasted have all come from three places. And uh, it was interesting that this is this kind of jumps ahead, but um, at one stage in the in the 80s, I got a call from Robert Mondavi, and he asked, asked if he could send a couple of people up to spend a few days with us. So one of his sons, who was running the vineyard at that time, and one of his winemakers and a couple of his vineyard people hmm. came up and spent a week up here. And we spent a lot of time with them. We did a lot of tasting, a lot of visiting vineyards. And we had a, a dinner toward the end of the week. And uh, they said, we understand it now. You just <laughs> got to grow the grapes in the right place. And they got it. I mean, that, that was clearly, and that was the point at which um, Robert was having phenomenal success with all of his wines except his reserve Pinot. And it wasn't as good as he wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you know, they started looking at property closer to the ocean, higher elevations, different places sure. for the fruit because the floor of the Napa Valley is not the place to grow Pinot. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, it's the opportunity to be part of something that is really special. Along those lines, I know you worked with a number of organizations while you were in the industry and have worked with uh, uh, over the years. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, some of the organizations you've worked with and some of the yeah, uh, um, contributions? One of the organizations we started was, we, we ultimately called it Oregon Wines of Distinction. <coughs> and uh, that was the um, early 80s or excuse me, early 90s. <clears throat> and the, uh, the predecessor of the Oregon Wine Board, <clears throat> which had funding from attacks on, on grapes, had decided that 90 plus percent of the Oregon wine was being sold in state at that time. So they should focus all their marketing dollars in Oregon. Mm because that's where the wine was being sold. And I was not on the, the board at that point, but I completely disagreed with that. I said, let's go after 
the rest of the world, and let's change that 10% to 20 to 30 to 40 to 50% sure. instead of just focusing on the 90% because there's a whole lot more wine buyers out there sure. than there are in Oregon. And I happened to meet, and I don't even know how we got together, meet a guy who was working for the, uh, the lottery at that point. And his job was to um, review and submit grants to the board for approval. And there was a uh, there was a provision in the in the grants that each county picked, I think, two or three industries, and the lottery could fund money to promote those industries, mainly to promote the marketing of those industries out of state. Mm -hmm. Not to do things in state, but to do out of state. So I found out about that, and several of our, our local counties, including Yamhill County, had adopted agriculture as one of their sure. focus areas. So I kind of put all that together, and I said, do you, do you think that there's a possibility that we could get some lottery funds to promote the wine industry. And he said, well, I, I think that would count under agriculture, but only in those counties that had adopted mm -hmm. agriculture as, as one of their areas. So I found a young man who had been involved with um, state government who had specialized in grants and I hired him out of my own pocket and I said um, I want you to sit down with me for a week and write a marketing plan. So we took the literally the week between Christmas and New Year's I took the week off and he sat down with me and we wrote the first comprehensive marketing plan for Oregon wines for out-of-state marketing and then submitted it to the, uh, well, then I talked with, the, uh, with the, the wine board people and they said, we're, we're willing to put some money up for that plan. I think it was $25,000 or something. We're willing to put some money up for that because you know, we're obviously not doing any out-of-state marketing and if you can put something together, we sure. will support it. So with that, I went to the, um, submitted it to the lottery and got approval for, um, I think it was $300,000 of matching funds. And we had to come up with the rest of it. Hmm. But it was the first pool of money that Oregon had access to besides the, the grape tax. Mm -hmm. It had to be used for marketing out of state and it had to be used for marketing wine, basically, agricultural product. And theoretically, it could only be used to match money that was raised by the wineries that were located in those counties that had adopted agriculture. Sure. And at that point, uh, the Southern Oregon counties had not adopted agriculture as one of their focus areas but we figured we had the majority of them up here. 
So, but we also said, this has to be an Oregon thing. It, it can't just be North Willamette Valley. It has to be for the state. And that was part of the, of the lottery thing. So I still remember a couple of meetings down in Southern Oregon where I, I really thought I might be lynched because you know, I went to these guys and I said, look, we've got this matching money. It matches mon funds that come from the North Willamette Valley, from these, these counties but we want you to be part of it. And anything you put into this won't be matched by the state, but we'll share our match with you and we'll promote the whole state. They said, you know, there's something wrong with that. You know, you're, you're, you know, you want to control us. The North Willamette Valley, Pinot Noir wants to control Oregon wines. And there were a few guys down there who ultimately became good friends of mine who um, got it. And they managed to sell their peers. And we set this thing up so that um, wineries could elect to participate or not. And we, then we put together uh, meetings of groups of wineries. And I finally, I think I got 14 North Willamette Valley wineries who all agreed that they would participate and that they'd put up like a thousand dollars a piece to get it started. And then they said, well, you know, let's, let's talk about how we're going to do this. So we'd have a meeting and it was a, a typical Oregon wine industry meeting. It was, it was marvelous, but it was very frustrating <laughs> because, you know, one guy would say, well, we, we have to do San Francisco. And then somebody else would say, ah, San Francisco is a waste of time. It has to be New York. And then somebody else would say, ah, we can't do New York. It's too expensive. <laughs> Let's do Chicago. <laughs> so I went back to our, our plan, our marketing plan we'd put together and kind of tweaked it a little bit. And I said, okay, let's make this something where everybody who agrees to put up their $1,000 is part of it. They get to be on the map. They get to be named as part of this group. But they can elect to participate in San Francisco or New York mm. or Chicago or wherever we do Atlanta, wherever we do one of these things. They're either in or out. And then they pay for their share of that piece plus the, the matching funds that we get for it. And I went back to them and I said, you know, here's the answer. You don't have to do all of it. You just do whatever you want. So I, we named them the Oregon Wines of Distinction. We did a little map and we put everybody on there who had agreed to put up the money. And we started this and we, we hired a local person in each city where we did this promotion. Um, somebody who was connected with the wine industry, either a journalist or a retailer or somebody, but somebody who had the wine community. Mm -hmm. And we paid them. We did a one-week program in each city. We got local restaurants to participate. We got local wine writers to participate. We got local wine education groups. And then we would come in and do a major 
tasting, usually in conjunction with a charitable organization of some kind. It was, a, I think it was the Art Museum in Atlanta. And, but it would be a, a, just a whole week blitz of Oregon with a lot of press lined up ahead, mm -hmm. a lot of consumers, and um, it was really successful. Um, when we started that program, by the time we started it, 11% of the Oregon wine was being sold out of state. In four years, 40% of the Oregon wine was being sold out of state, and wow. the total production had doubled. So wow. basically, the numbers went from, from 11 to 80, so sure. like a seven times increase of Oregon wine being sold out of state. And you know, part, of it, part of it was that program. Part of it was the fact the vintages were getting better. We were getting good press. It was, there was a lot of things sure. that came together. But I was really thrilled with the way that worked. And then finally, after four years, the wine board came to us and said, we'd like to just fold this in to our operation and make it, um, make it our out-of-state marketing arm. And I've, I, you know, of all the things we put together, I'm, I'm really proud of that one because it was, it was something that was there at the right time. It accomplished more than what sure. I expected to accomplish. And a lot of uh, new wineries got started during that period and they were able to build their out-of-state marketing, get distributors, get exposure. Through that uh, organization, where the rest of us had had to do it just slogging, you know, <laughs> one at a time. Sure. And, and some little ad hoc uh, events that had been done. But this, this was really organized. It was first rate, and it was, it was done, um, you know, a lot of Oregon wine, or a lot of um, American wine regions do similar promotions now. But this was really one of the first. And I think it said to the wine world, these guys are serious. Mm -hmm. They know what they're doing. Uh, they're professionals. And they've got damn good wine. <laughs> <laughs> Most important part of all. Yeah. Anyway, so. I, I'm really pleased with, with that one. And then um, the, the second organization that I ended up being a major part of was called Pinot Noir America, which started in California, a group of uh, Pinot producers and a, uh, and a marketing guy got together and said, you know, we're having a hard time selling California Pinot. Um, there was a reason for it, but <laughs> we're having a hard time selling California Pinot. We need to get together and promote it. Just promote Pinot Noir. So they did, and their, their first ads were uh, basically California Pinot, it's as good as Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> so, th so they were using us as their, their standard, and I, you know, I was impressed with that, but it was also kind of, uh, it, they weren't right, it wasn't as good as Oregon, but they were trying. <laughs> anyway, uh, they operated this organization for a couple of years, and then I knew several of these guys because we'd been, we'd done tastings together, and we'd or involved in various things, and they came to me and said, how would you like to join Pinot Noir America and help us promote Pinot Noir? And I said, well, first thing you have to do is change your slogan. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, it, you know, I think it makes some sense. So um, Dave Adelsheim and I agreed to join, and there were 
several of the producers at that point who were a little skeptical of the two of us joining up with these Californians because of the history of, of that sure, organization. Sure. But we just jumped right in. And within a couple of years, I was the president and David was the secretary. And we had a, an executive uh, person who was hired who was in, happened to be in Seattle at that point, And she was running the organization for us. And we basically ran it out of Oregon. But it was promoting Pinot Noir. And we were doing, we were doing tastings all over. We were doing comparative tastings of Oregon Pinot, Burgundies, California Pinots, uh, a lot of education. And, and it, it wasn't trying to say, you know, Oregon's better than France or mm -hmm. California's better than Oregon. Mm -hmm. It was to say, this is Pinot Noir. And if you haven't tasted it, you should. And this is why. <laughs> and we're really trying to focus on the cab drinkers and the, the the wine enthusiasts mm -hmm. who weren't drinking Pinot very much. Well, that was another organization that um, got to be, um, it was successful. And it was another like a three or four year period. Finally, the Californians uh, came to us and said, we're running out of wine. <laughs> we're, we're making all we can and it's working. So we don't think we need to put up, you know, we, we keep need to keep funding another organization when we don't have anything to promote, and we've done our job. So we closed down the organization and uh, felt like it was a real success. Two big successful projects, that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I, and, and you know, I, I feel like if I contributed anything to the industry, those two were probably the two that had the biggest impact ultimately. Um, in, uh, well, one other thing, one other way you made a splash, I know, was when you hired Lynn Pinterash to come be your winemaker. Yep. So tell me about how that happened. Well, that, that goes back. Um, in 87, summer started in April. And we've had a couple of years like that recently, and we're, we're in another mm -hmm. one right now. And my winemaker and I were sitting there in, in May, and I said, uh, David, you know, I, I know you've been around your vineyard most of your life. You've been, been around the industry now for you know, 10 or 12 years. This is going to be an unusual year. And I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm basically a farmer. I, I know how to grow things. And I know what's happening with those grapes. And I know that if they're like this in May, we're going to be harvesting in August. And he said, no way. He said, it always evens out, and it may be hot early, it'll get cooler later, we'll get rain, we'll be harvesting in September, don't worry. Through the summer, almost every time David and I were together, we had this discussion. <laughs> and he was set on his position, I was set on mine. In uh, late August, Jan and I were at a, a, a meeting in Switzerland, and I was calling the winery just to check on things. And toward the end of the week, um, I was talking, I don't think I was talking to David, I was talking to somebody else in the staff. And he said, oh, by the way, the grapes have started to come in. They're ripening so fast that we have to pick them. We hadn't bottled our 86 vintage. 
every container we had in the winery was full oh. of wine, except for the fermentation vats. So I knew, knew we had a week or two, <laughs> but we had to find a home for this stuff. So I uh, flew home, went straight to the winery from the airport, uh, told my winemaker to pack his bags, he was gone, and took over. Wow. And I knew, you know, because of the way those grapes were ripening, they were going to be more like California Pinots. So this was not going to be a great Oregon vintage anyway. And I might as well do it myself. <laughs> and I'm not a winemaker. I'm not trained as a winemaker. I, I understand wine very well. Um, I found a, uh, a fellow who had worked for Susan Sokolblosser, who was a PhD, I guess a biochemist or something, you know, a good technical guy, and said, I'd like you to come in part-time and run the lab and do the analyses for me. And I've got a couple of young people who have worked in the cellar over the last couple of years. They know enough about the basic processes that I think with some direction, we can do that if you can do the... Is that, that was Bob McRitchie? Yeah, yeah. And, and Bob was great. You know, fortunately, he was available because he was... Um, he came in and, uh, you know, confirmed that these were not going to be great wines. <laughs> there were a lot of reasons they weren't going to be great wines. So we, um, we fermented them as simply as we could. I found a, uh, a very large tank that um, a winery in Salem had had made and then um, for some reason didn't use it and decided that they wanted to sell it. So we took a truck down, loaded up this big tank, it was like a 3,000 gallon tank, brought it in and essentially ended up with all of the 87 Pinots in this one big tank. And you know, I, I said, all right, this will give me time to find a really good winemaker. So over the winter, I started a search, and uh, really, uh, Burg Burgundy, California, Washington, was looking for people from anywhere, uh, preferably somebody who had some experience with Pinot. And through a... Um, a headhunter in California who found out about it. I got a call and she said, I've got this young woman who has never made any Pinot, but she is a damn good winemaker. <laughs> and she's really interested in Oregon because of the potential there. Lynn came up and I, I think it was as clear to her as it was to me at that point in our first meeting that this was just meant to be. This was her opportunity to get to Oregon she was exactly what I was looking for. And um, she was planning to have a, a transition and get up, take some time off and then get up here in the summer. Mm -hmm. But after uh, tasting the 87, she said, those wines need me, I'll get here as fast <laughs> as I can. <laughs> so she was here in April and um, she cleaned them up and, and we said, you know, we really don't want to put a Rex Hill label on those wines. And I don't think I would have wanted to even if I'd had a, a good winemaker making them because the grapes weren't right. 
they, they were too ripe. They had none of the beauty of Oregon wines. Mm -hmm. They tasted like a lot of California crap, basically. <laughs> Excuse me, Californians. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, so we said, what are we going to do? And we said, well, let's put them in a plain bottle, get them bottled, put them in a plain bottle, and then we'll figure out a name and figure out how we're going to sell it. So we came up with the Kings Ridge name and sold it for uh, yeah, 10 bucks a bottle or something. And it was really um, barely covered our cost. <laughs> but it sold. And a lot of restaurants picked it up and it was okay. Certainly for the price, it was, it was sure. okay. It wouldn't have been a $30 bottle of wine. Then, um, then Lynn, after we'd kind of gotten control of those, decided we want to do with them. She said, "Well, there's some equipment I need. There's some things we need to 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 add." So we we went on a major push. We did some remodeling at the winery. We got equipment in. Got all ready to go. And then '88 was you know going to be her first vintage. And I think we were figuring on 200 plus tons of fruit, which would have been a big production year for us. By the time fall arrived, uh, we got 70 tons of fruit. Mm. So we had you know, a relatively expensive staff, a big building, all the equipment, all the barrels, and most of it was empty. But what fruit we did have was 83 quality. I mean, it was it was really exceptional stuff. And um, so Lynn's first vintage was dealing with some wonderful fruit in a I would consider it to be a relatively unstressful environment because <laughs> she had all the equipment, she had everything she needed. She made some wonderful. Ultimately, one of those wines, a single vineyard from the Dundee Hills Vineyard, um, in 1991 was selected as the top Pinot Noir in the world at the International Wine Spirit Competition. Wow. And of all the professional accolades I've ever received, that was the, that was the top. That's incredible. Um, Lynn didn't get to go back to um, get to be there to get the award, but I, I did. I made a 24-hour trip to London. and um, One of uh, Druen's Pinots was second, and one of Mondavi's was third. Ah. And the two of them were there to give me my big award. It's a big um, jug with, engraved with the Humphrey Edwards Jones Trophy. And I could tell from both of them that they both wanted that <laughs> trophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, and both of them ultimately became friends because, um, you know, they figured I was, maybe maybe there was some substance there <laughs> at Rex Hill. We weren't just a, you know, little little bitty guy sure. in Oregon that sure. they didn't have to pay attention to. So. Um, wow. So that was, you know, Lynn's beginning. She made one of the finest Pinots that's been made in Oregon, I think. And uh, certainly um, some phenomenal accolades. And then she just went on 
success after success after success. Sure. And, um, and I'm sure you'll get a chance to talk to her about her story, but it was really clear at one point um, that what she wanted was her own label, her own winery. And um, we actually started the Penrash label um, while she was at Rex Hill. And I knew that it was just a question of time. Sure. So I, you know, we kind of worked through the transition. And I, I really, um, I, I think, helped them get, get started. So, and she deserves all the success she has. She's, she's a damn fine winemaker. Yeah. Yeah, we talked to her and Ron a couple months ago, actually, and she said had many nice things to say about you and, yeah. and the and the help that you give in her career. So yeah. definitely, definitely mutual feeling. We, you know, we didn't always agree on the direction of Rex Hill because uh, by the early '90s um, we had so much fruit coming in, and we expanded the Kings Ridge line, and we were doing a lot of um, a lot more varietals, making a lot more wine than. Lynn really wanted to because she couldn't focus on the, the best stuff sure. like she did in 88. Um, but other than that, we had a very good relationship and I'm, I'm proud of her. She's, she's a good kid. Cool. So take us through your, your decision to sell uh, and how you decided who to sell to um, and how you knew the time was right. That was interesting. I, I um, you know, as an actuary, I'm a planner, mm -hmm. and three of my four kids had the opportunity to work either in the vineyards or in the winery, and all three of them decided it was just too damn much work, <laughs> and they wanted other careers. Sure. It was not something they wanted to do. And then my fourth, my son, um, who was a Stanford engineering graduate, you know, had other fish to fry in sure. California. so. I wasn't going to have a, a kid to come along. I had a couple of grandsons, as it turned out, who might have been interested, but that was too long. Mm -hmm. So I decided that um, when I turned 62 in 2002 would be the time to sell. And really the last, last couple of years of, of, uh, of the last century, and going into 2001, a lot of things we were doing at the winery were positioning us so that um, we'd be ready mm -hmm. to sell. And 9-11 came along and absolutely knocked the pins out from underneath it. It, it destroyed my marketing. Mm, yeah. Because so many of my top customers closed their restaurants mm -hmm. or cut their wine list back from sure. 300 to 75 and uh, we just lost so much and you know so many people kind of pulled back and stopped spending sure. money on fancy stuff and uh, wine wasn't as important then as right. the survival of the country right. really. Um, so it was clear by early 2002 that I had a lot more work to do. So I basically started over again. What I'd spent the last 20 years doing marketing, I redid in the next three. <laughs> <laughs> and from in 2002 to 2005, built the marketing back, uh, 
changed our mix of production, uh, really tried to figure out how we could get back to where I wanted to be. And by 2005, we were getting there. Um, but Oregon was not really the darling at that point. There, there wasn't as much excitement out there. Um, and I, I retained a, a firm in California that was owned by a bank that we did business with to market us very discreetly. And we had, uh, we had players from France, from the US, from Mexico even, um, who came up, took a look at us, went through the books. And every one of them, the, the principal, the winemaker, the, the marketing people were really enthusiastic about Rex Hill. They went back, sat down with the accountants, and they said, it's in Oregon. We're not going to spend that much money <laughs> in Oregon. If it were California, yes. If it were Washington at that point, maybe. Oregon, no. And it was just every single one of them, the same thing. And so this went on for about a year. It was all done very, very quietly. I don't think anybody outside of a, a small number of us really knew anything about it. And mm -hmm. all the people we talked with had signed non-disclosures. And sure. they, they weren't talking about what they were doing. And in uh, 2006, the, um, the bank decided to close down that brokerage firm and, and get out of that market. So the young lady who'd been working with us was out of a job, basically. And you know, we didn't have any, anything going. So I decided, all right, let's see if I can do it myself. And I made some phone calls. Um, I put together a whole package and mm -hmm. started talking to people. And I went back and talked with a couple of the people that we talked with in 2005. And as it turned out, by the summer of 2006, uh, Oregon was getting really good press again. There was a lot of enthusiasm. And people started calling me, <laughs> saying, you know, are you interested? And one of the people that, I, that had called me was uh, two guys who are uh, local investment guys who manage money. And they said, we've got a client that um, is, is interested and we'd really like to talk with you about it. So I sat down and I gave them all my criteria. I was very straightforward. I had a price. I had five or six things that were really important to me and the rest of us negotiated. So the, um, one of the firms then said, uh, we'd really like to look seriously at it. We'd like to go into the due diligence process. And this was probably mid-August. Mm -hmm. And I spent weeks and weeks and weeks with their analysts going through everything, answering all their questions, huge volume of stuff. And sure. by, um, by October, they had what they wanted and they decided, yeah, we were interested. And I said, well, you know, come to me with an offer. You know what, I, what I'm expecting. In the meantime, um, a couple of the California firms that I had talked with before came to me and said, well, you know, we think 
we might be able to sell the accountants on Oregon now based on all the press <laughs> Oregon is getting. So we'd really like to get serious about this. So I said, okay, I went through the stuff with them. And as it turned out, all of this stuff all came together in um, one, one week. And I had, um, I had an offer from the local firm. I had two offers from California and was sitting there um, saying, all right, well, I'll, I'll take a few days to go through all of these and then I'll get back to you. And toward the end of the week, I got a call from uh, an attorney in California who had represented one of the wineries that had been looking at us in 2005. And they said, um, are you still for sale? I said, yes. And they said, well, we've got a, we've got a guy in our office who'd like to talk to you. He's 80 years old. He um, inherited a lot of family money. Over the last couple of years, he's bought a winery in France. He's bought a couple in California. He's interested in buying one in Oregon. So they put the guy on the phone, and we talked for about a half hour. And he said, uh, where's the nearest airport? And I said, how big's your plane? He said, well, I've got a G2. And uh, he said, uh, I can be on the ground in two hours. I said, I'll meet you at McMinnville. So met him at the airport, took him to the winery, spent the afternoon with him, and uh, brought him back to his plane. And uh, he was a delightful guy. We really had a good time. And he said, I'll have an offer to you by noon tomorrow. So uh, at 11 o'clock the next morning, this faxed offer came in. It was basically you know, everything on my list. And it had uh, one contingency was based on the, the EBITDA number we had to have a number that was at or above this level. But if we did, um, then he was interested. So, but I didn't know this guy from Adam. I you know, had no idea how he would treat the employees, what he would do with the brand or anything. Sure. But he was there. So I had, uh, I had four offers. And you know, one of them wanted to basically buy the brand, but have me keep all the real estate and lease everything out to <laughs> them. Uh, one of them wanted me to stay on basically as the CEO for two years in a transition and then they would mm -hmm. take over. Um, the one from the two local investment firms wanted me to leave immediately. <laughs> basically, <laughs> they just wanted to take over, sure. whoever their, their client was. And, uh, but they, they, um, they came in, they were, the guys in the investment firms were doing their job. You know, they knew what I wanted. They came in like 95% of each one of them, knowing there'd be some negotiating room. Sure. Um, the other guys all came in and said, right down the line, this will give you what you want. So I had all these offers, and you know they ranged from me leaving immediately to me staying on with a major commitment sure. in the real estate. So over the weekend, um, we had a big wine brotherhood event out at our big vineyard, and you know lovely evening, just a just a perfect fall evening. Harvest was going on, and I was sitting there this, this tent in the midst of 150 of my friends and. It was a very um, 
a very nostalgic time for me because I was looking around saying, you know, tomorrow this could all change. And I've got to make a decision by the time tomorrow gets here. So uh, Monday morning I called one of the groups from California that I had spent a lot of time with the year before. And I said, You're, you guys have made a clean offer. You're meeting all my criteria. I like you personally. I think you could do a good job with it. So you've got it. And I called the others and I said, you know, I've, I've made my selection. The next day, the guys from California arrived and they had um, they had somebody who was putting up the bulk of the money who was supposed to be at the meeting and he didn't show up. And I thought, you know, this is a red flag. As mm -hmm. much as I like these guys, I don't think it's going to work. So I said, we've got to back off until I've had a chance to talk with your, your money guy and uh, you know, see if he's really going to be able to write the check or you know, willing to. And I got back to the office, had a phone call from um, our accountant. And he said, Paul, I know you turned down the offer from the investment guys in uh, Portland. And he said, why? And I explained. He said, well, do you know who their client is? And I said, I don't have a clue. You know, we've gone through this for two months with them. And they're representing somebody, but I don't have any idea who it is. And he said, it's Bill. I said, oh, shit. <laughs> it was Hatcher. And, you know, Bill and I were good friends at that point, and uh, I think he felt that um, we couldn't really negotiate this properly. Sure. So he hired these guys to do it for him. <laughs> and I said, well, I, I called Bill and I said, well, they did such a good job representing you that, um, you know, they kept you out of the game. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, let's talk. So. Uh, Friday night, um, in the meantime, the guys from California still hadn't got their financial guy you know, in a position where he could come up and meet with me. So Friday night, Bill brought over a couple of bottles of Pinot and Bill and Deb and Jan and I sat there and literally went through the criteria and Bill agreed to what I wanted. And you know, we'd been making wine for them. We'd been bottling all their wines. We'd had a very good relationship, a very close relationship for five years and knew them well. They knew the winery well. Um, it just, and I've got a lot of respect for them as marketers. So I said, this, this is just a natural thing. This is what was meant to be. And I, you know, I trust you with the brand. Um, so I, I was really pleased Ultimately, Ultimately, we were able to do that. After all that. Yeah, after all that, that we were able to do it. And, uh, but it worked, and, uh, <laughs> and they've done a phenomenal job. I'm just so pleased with not only their success with their own brand, but with the way they've treated the Rex Hill brand. Sure. And they've got the price up to where it should have been and really doing a good job. So. Kind of like handing over one of your children, right? It is. Yeah. It is. So then what have you been up to since, since uh, you sold? 
I seem to keep busy. <laughs> I, I was on several boards. I was you know, active in a lot of um, charitable things for a while. And I gradually phased out of all of those. Um, I got very involved in our country club, became the president, and was on the board there for five years. Uh, spent a lot of time. Not only became president, but um, we fired our general manager, and uh, I took over as GM <laughs> for about three months until we hired a, a new guy. So I've been busy with that. Uh, I've got a lot of grandchildren who are all here and very active, uh, very active in their lives, and having a lot of fun with that. Yeah. Drinking a lot of wine. Drinking a lot of wine. Never doubted that. And uh, just uh, enjoying life. So you kind of you came into the industry kind of differently than most. You came mm -hmm. in as a consumer first, and then in the business. How have you seen it evolve in the, the almost forty years now, or more than forty years you've been a part of it? Well, you know, there, there were. It's really interesting because a number of years ago, I got a call from a journalist from she was in New York who said, "You know, I'm writing this article about." Oregon wine industry. There's 200 wineries here at this point. She said, uh, how many think, do you think they're going to be in five years? And I said, probably 400. And there was just absolutely dead silence. And she said, I have talked to a lot of people. And most of them have said there's going to be consolidation. Wineries are going out of business. They're going to be acquiring bigger ones. They're going to be acquiring the little ones. Mm -hmm. And there will be fewer wineries five years from now than there are now. And I said, believe me. And I said, there just, there's still a lot of land. Um, it's still relatively inexpensive compared to land in other wine regions. And it's great. Uh, it's possible for a young couple to come in uh, put together a small winery, small vineyard, and uh, support themselves if they do most of the work and they have you know some help when they need it. But they can have uh, a lifestyle and uh, uh, support themselves and the family. And then what I expected would ultimately happen has already started happening with big firms coming mm -hmm. in, making major investments. Um, there's going to be more of that. So at, at both ends of the scale, from the you know, small guys to the you know, guys like me who decided to change from another career and do something and you know, accumulated enough assets to be able to finance it. And, uh, and, and it's 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 a very appealing business from the outside. Mm -hmm. It's appealing from the inside, but it's challenging too. Mm -hmm. There's so much, so much that you don't have control over, like 9/11s and mm -hmm. weather and things. But the people you meet through the wine industry are just some of the finest people in the world. And to be able to go into a great restaurant in New York or London and have them acknowledge you and uh, respect you mm -hmm. because of the product that you've been able to make um, is wonderful. Mm -hmm. 
So I, th there's still lots of potential here. What would you say the biggest misconception someone who admired the industry from outside would have about what it actually takes to be successful? Weather. <laughs> <laughs> so we've still got <clears throat> tremendous differences from one vintage to the next, um, from one year to the next. I mean, I'm, I've been around long enough now, I'm beginning to see, well, you know, this year looks a little like 87 maybe. But still not, it's still not the same. Right. Um, but at least it is, you know, and, and I've got friends in France whose families have been in the business for a couple of hundred years. Uh, they can say, you know, this year looks a little like 1923. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But, and when I was in the business, each year was new and we had to figure out how to do it. And I, th I think that um, one of the things that that we managed to do during that time period, and it wasn't just me, a lot of people were contributing to it, was have a much better idea of how to manage the vineyards and how to um, figure out early enough in the year what the year is going to be like hmm. to do the things in the vineyard so that you get the best crop you possibly can. You might not always get the greatest fruit, but you'll get the best one you can given that particular um, weather uh, and that vintage. So I'd say that. And, and the marketing then is the other side. Um, with as many Oregon wineries as there are <clears throat> and a consolidation of distributors around the country, it's really difficult to start an Oregon winery and go to New York and find a distributor willing to take on your wines. Now that the direct consumer stuff has helped a lot because um, there are wineries who could sell all of their wine mm -hmm. right out the door mm -hmm. or over the internet. And that's wonderful. You know, if you can do that, um, it takes out one whole chunk sure. of uh, the margin and uh, makes it even more possible for a small operation to succeed. But marketing stuff. Is it still possible today for a young couple to get into the industry and be successful? I think so. I think it'll still continue to be that way. What advice would you give? Talk to people. <laughs> Hang out <laughs> at your favorite wineries and absorb as much as you possibly can. Learn everything you can from the people who've gone before you. And, and then try to figure out, well, these are the mistakes they made. I won't make those. <laughs> I may make some of my own, but uh, I think there's a lot you can learn. Since you've proven to be, have a good idea of where the Oregon wine industry is going in the future previously, if, you, if I ask you now, what will it look like in five or 10 or 15 years? More wineries, more vineyards. Different varieties. Uh, that, that's an interesting point because you know this was Pinot Noir country when I first got involved. Um, there's certainly I I really believe in global warming, whatever the cause is, um, and you know critters in the ocean are moving north, <laughs> critters in the air and on land are moving north. 
uh, grapes will be moving north. We'll be, we may have different varieties and we'll have the opportunity to uh, deal with other varieties here. Um, we made a Cabernet, um, I think it was 92, a hot vintage. Um, Lynn and I took a look at the weather in May and said, uh, you know, this may be one of those years where the Pinot gets too ripe too early. Um, what are we going to do? So we went out and bought all the Cabernet grapes available in the North Willamette Valley, which was five vineyards. Mm -hmm. We had one acre and one vineyard we managed. And uh, they all said, you're crazy. You know, nobody wants this fruit. It doesn't get ripe here. And I said, well, I'd like to buy it, and I'll give you a good price for it. Um, got closer to harvest. I was getting calls from those guys saying, you remember that Cabernet that I agreed to sell you? Um, do you re really want it? <laughs> I said, absolutely. And they said, well, you know, we think it might get ripe this year. And I said, that's why I want it. <laughs> <laughs> we made a Cabernet that won, probably won more total awards than any other wine we made. We won a double gold in Seattle, and um, it was, it had the potential to be the, um, though I can't, can't remember their name, but basically the, the top wine of the show in the major competition. Hmm. But one of the judges who was from California said, um, an Oregon Cabernet should never <laughs> do that. <laughs> so for, based on that, uh, we didn't get the, the top award. Anyway, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of varieties could ultimately do well. I think there's, uh, um, I'm really pleased, I, I haven't talked about Pinot Gris, but at one point we were the biggest producer of Pinot Gris in the world, uh, at Rex Hill, and uh, uh, certainly the largest in the United States. And uh, I just love the variety, um, love the potential it has here, and you know, producers have done an amazing job with it. And it's it's really widely accepted, and. I think it's even if the climate gets a little bit warmer than it is, Pinot Gris is still going to be. Chardonnays could be uh, unbelievably good here. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're good now, but they're a different type of Chardonnay than a lot of consumers like. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of the California varietals may head up here. Um, Would yeah. that mean? Could you see California? Declining because of that? Uh, well, they may, um, I mean, parts of California may be making more Italian wines and uh, sure. Spanish wines. And, sure. uh, Interesting. I don't think it'll be declining, but it could be, could be changing. <laughs> changing also. But, you know, that's, that's a change that's going to happen over a very long period of time. But, sure. But it could. Anyway, it's, it's, Oregon's a wonderful place to grow fruit. It'll always be a wonderful place to grow fruit. And so I, I think that uh, long-term, the industry will be here and be even more successful. You mentioned, so you mentioned earlier um, getting your award from being handed it by Robert Durin and, and Robert Mondavi. Is that the moment you look back on with most fondness, or is there a certain moment that you look back on as your favorite kind of wine moment? That, that, that had to be the top. Um, that, that was 
certainly the most exciting. Just um, I don't even know how to how to describe it. It 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 was confirmation, I guess. I, I see that. Yeah. What about, is there something you would do differently if you were going back? A lot of things I'd do differently. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't grow as fast as we did in the early 90s. Um, I, I got a little ahead of myself. I sold my other business. I had more money available. Uh, Lynn was excited, um, and there were a lot of grapes coming on, and we we planted a lot of vineyards of our own. Um, I wouldn't have grown that fast if looking back at it now. Mm -hmm. um, so. Well, that's all so. the questions I have for you. Is there anything I should have asked? Anything else you'd like to add? Um, I've got lots lots more stories. Of so course. Maybe we could. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd be glad to do this again sometime if you want. We'd love to have you back for more stories. That'd be wonderful. Be wonderful. Well, for now, though, we'll call that the end of the formal interview. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.